right about the time I was born, bought the Minesweeper, and he bought a house down in Newport Beach. So up until that time, he'd only been, you know, he'd been coming down to Newport since he was a, a teenager and playing on the beach and, you know, going boating with guys. And, you know, I guess he had a couple different boats, like the Norwester and, and something else. He spent a lot of time on John Ford's Ariner. But when he bought the Wild Goose, like, you know, that was that was the start of my life, and I was on it from the get-go. So it wasn't like, oh, we go boating in July. You know, it was his life was three to nine months on location because each film is three months. Mm. And uh, so I was young. He knew he was going to lose me when I became a teenager, and he wouldn't be there you know, when I would come back around in my 30s to, to connect with my father again. So, you know, he took me with him, and, and we found this in a in an unfinished biography where the, the guy asked him, like, why do you take Ethan out of school? Why does he get to go all these places? He says, because, you know, I'll lose him when he's a teenager, and I won't be there by the time he comes back. So I went on location, and I went on the boat. And, you know, his life was you know, making films, and when he wasn't making films, he was trying to get to the boat, and if we had to stop at the house to take care of administrative issues, we did. But most of the time was, you know, Durango, Mexico, or the Wild Goose. And in the, mm. you know, in the summer, it was up north in, in British Columbia and southern Alaska. And in the wintertime, it was in, uh, you know, the Sea of Cortez or mainland Mexico. And and that illusion that you that you just made about uh, you know losing you in your teens and then coming back around in your thirties that was kind of about your brothers right where that similar relationship kind of happened with them and your dad. But I guess so because you know I I just thought he took he took everybody with him when he went to work but I, you know I guess in their case it was different their family dynamics were a little bit different and um, they would go visit him. But I'm not sure that, that he pulled them out of their schooling and um, took them down there. Gotcha. I know, I know as adults, they, they spent a lot of time with them. They worked with them. But I guess not in their early years when he separated from their mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it was a conscious effort on his part to, you know, to keep this, you know, me and my two sisters with them as much as possible. That's, that's so, like he gets a job, he's gone three months. Like mm-hmm. there's no coming back. There's no whatever. He's in Mexico. This is in the sixties. Right. You know, it's so funny. You talk about being taken out of school. What what kind of education did you get on the water and and on these trips? Well, it's funny. It's like if you if you go, you know, I, I, it it wasn't you know like people are like oh do you scuba dive? Oh let's go on a scuba diving trip where somebody hands you your your thing and they connect your regulator to the tank mm-hmm. i mean you know we did everything so it wasn't like it wasn't like we were going on a vacation where you know you go to brunch and then you get on the boat and they have snacks for i mean we did everything right you know it's different like when we when i was a kid we took care of all the equipment we drove the little boat we mopped the decks we wiped down the rails with the crew you know it was just like if you grow up on a ranch and you take care of the animals and you, you know, just certain things you do. And it's not a, it's not a vacation. It's not like, oh, we're going to go yachting. We lived on a boat, you know, for as long as we could whenever he had time. And the boat did have a crew, but we were, you know, we were very involved with it. Right. And, and, and how did that education kind of influence, you know, how, how you operate today as, as a business owner? For me, you know, it's like if you're not doing something, you're not doing something. <laughs> Great point. You know? So if you're sitting there relaxing, you got to realize you're not doing something you could be doing. And like along those lines, you know, like you're saying, I've read, I've read uh, other interviews that you gave that life aboard was no luxury liner. You know, you had to earn your keep. And you kind of described that just now. But anything else that like your dad kind of ingrained in you guys at a young age that you had to do aboard? It's funny, you know, as a young person, we don't, it doesn't seem like we give young people the same latitude that I had when I was growing up. Hmm. You know, I 
I could go get fuel for the boat and put it in and mix it. I could take my little sister, who was four years younger than me, you know, when I was 10, I could, could take the whalers around. And, and, you know, we're in we're in places where there's nobody around and maybe the, the only little fishing village is a few miles away. And, you know, we go up rivers that had breaking surf at the mouth. And, you know, when I think back to it now, I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, I don't know I'd let my nephew loose right <laughs> up in it you know you kind of um you uh, sort of accept the responsibility or you you know you have to think on your own you have to be responsible for the equipment i couldn't just go out i shouldn't say this obviously i, I broke stuff when i was a kid but but you had to have a modicum of uh uh you know neurons working to to get back and to keep everybody safe and you know, you, you he'd get frustrated when people didn't know how to tie up the dinghy right. Or I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. We we always anchored, so you had all the anchoring issues. You had you know tenders hanging off the sides of the boat. You had you know you had all the issues that you have when you're you know sort of running your own boat. Guys anchoring in the wrong place, dragging their anchor over yours, yelling and screaming about this or that, or you know, it's just. And I think when you're John Wayne, you have a bigger, you have a larger spotlight shining on you all the time. You know, if something were to go wrong, people want to yell and point. That that's a great that's a great point. And and can you elaborate on any of those challenges that he had because of his because of his star power? Um, I think that's probably why we went to remote areas. Mm-hmm. You know, Ketchikan in the mid mid to late '60s and. And Big Bay and, and Desolation Sound and those places had had a boating community, but it's not like today where there's so many charter boats and there's so many just boats. Like, you know, if you wanted a 50 or 60-foot boat back then, there weren't that many you could just go buy. A lot of these guys had them built. I, my boat's a 72, uh, you know, monk-designed trawler that somebody had to have the guy build. Right, like they had to have Ed Monk design it, and another place build it, and another right. place finish it. Right. Today, you can just go buy a fifty-foot boat. You know, there are a dime a dozen, so there's people everywhere. Back then, it was it was quieter, mm. and uh, it was the beginning of a lot of these places, and it was just it was terrific. He got to, you know, relax, uh, be around a smaller crowd. Uh, there wasn't so much, you know, if you go into some place where it's it's busy, and they expect you. It's more frenzied. So up there mm-hmm. it was more just, you know, he could he could relax and explore and pick berries and go swimming, and you know, was was great for him. Right, and you know, I'm curious. Did you find that the boaters you guys did encounter were? Would you find that they were maybe more respectful of of your as space and time, maybe more so than than the California crowd? Well, I think just. At that time, people were more respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had to get a camera and like put film in. <laughs> now you could just snap photos, so it was harder to get pictures. You couldn't record. It was just, you know, people had a little bit more privacy and they could just be relaxed and have fun with their friends. I know you had a story about. Um, I think it was at your house where two. I think they were Marines, maybe were looking around to see if, if your father was around and he kind of like, you know, looking from the outside and he yelled at them and, and then invited them in like, we're, and you know, it was really uh, well, we, courteous to them. Like, was there any kind of stories like that about boaters being out on the water? Sure. With them? It's, just, it, it's constant. Like it's hard to even get specific with one because it was just constant. You know, if somebody knew, it was John Wayne. A lot of people felt a very personal connection to him, and uh, either the way he behaved on screen or off screen, or the values that he represented. The military uh, loved the guy. You know, he supported them. Uh, he was an actor. He was an artist. You know, he wasn't a war hero. And he wasn't really a cowboy. But he was a terrific artist, and he portrayed them well. And I and I think they appreciated it. Uh, so we'd have many, many, many stories of guys, you know, finding their way out. And that one at the house, I just happen to remember it. 
clearly. You know, a couple guys absconded with a little rowboat from a beach across the bay, and, you know, they rode over. They just wanted to look at the house, and then they held onto the dock, and, you know, my dad kept his lap. We didn't have security or, or anything. So my dad, you know, grabbed his Colt Python and put it in his pocket and walked out and said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, we're so sorry. <laughs> Here you lived here. We wanted to just come look at the house, and we held on to the dock. And goes, well, who are you? And you know, we're here. We're doing this. We're serving in this branch or whatever. He goes, well, get up here and have a drink with me. Oh. He invites men. He sits down. He, he gave a lot of himself to you know the public or the fans or whatever you might want to call it. And these, in, in this instance, you know, these are a couple of guys who are who are serving their country, and um, those types of situations he, he couldn't help but but you know give of his time to these guys because he knew it it meant something to them and it meant something to him that they they liked him you know that they cared about him that they appreciated what he did for them or how he represented them on film mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so if if he you know ran into a situation like that he he did give his time and at the end of the day that's all we really have right it's time and and so he had to be in his mid-60s at that point because you know i'm i'm a young boy but i re- i'm remembering it so i had to be you know 10 years old so he sure. had to be 66 years old at that time and, and are you just kind of like is he hanging out with these guys in the kitchen you're kind of just there like fly on the wall kind of taking it all in is it that kind of yeah yeah walk around and walk outside with them you know I'd hold his hand and we'd go see what was going on and wow and then when they come in you know I'd, I'd probably just wandering around in the background doing stuff yeah and he'd spend time with them and he'd send them on their way and and uh you know that's that's your time that's giving a piece of your life to somebody mm-hmm. oh, I'm sure it's a I'm sure that's a story those guys are still those guys will never forget I mean they're, they're probably right. still telling that story like, we're all busy, right? We all have busy lives. But when you're John Wayne, I mean, it's just another level of busy. There's another level. Of, if we meet 10 people a day, you know, he's, he's encountering 100. And if, you know, if, if, you know, three or four of those 10 people remember you, 100% of the people that he encounters remember him. But if they see him again... You know, he's got to listen to, I met you in 1969. We were at the thing. Do you remember? He's like, well, I uh, know. Of course. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah, yeah. You know, nobody forgets. And, and even as a little kid, you know, I'm like, wow, how come, how come I can't remember all these people and they remember me? It's up to you get a little bit older that you realize, oh, there's a huge John Wayne <laughs> billboard behind my head. Yeah. I was aware of when I was a kid, you know? No, good point. So so it sounds like he was really hands-on, and, and I was just wondering, you know, he, he bought a over 100-foot boat with uh, the Wild Goose, and you say that there was a crew, but were they more like auxiliary people on board, and was he more of like an owner-operator that kind of, because clearly you guys had a big hand, and it wasn't just like LeBron James or one of these big megastars no, nowadays. It was a little different. I mean, he sometimes he'd go drive the boat, you know, he'd pick where we went, but he wasn't. You know, he was there to relax and have fun. Mm-hmm. He wanted, you know, even on my book, some weekends I look at him like after working all week, I'm like, I don't want to go do it. And you, you start to realize, like, oh, I see why people want, you know, a captain and somebody to make the food because if you have free time, great. But if you don't, you know, you're kind of tired and you'd like that little, little bit of relaxation. He liked the boat to get him and his friends to places where he could explore. So he'd want to go fishing. He'd want to go hunting. Uh, you know, he had a buddy that was a, a guide that had a seaplane. So in British Columbia, this guy, Buzz Fiorini, uh, who's pretty famous in the Pacific Northwest, owned a ski school and, and one of the early, like, sort of, you know, big sport, sporting goods stores for winter sports and summer sports was up there in uh, Seattle. Mm-hmm. Buzz would fly up in a seaplane, and his, the guy that he bought the boat from, Max Wyman, you know, would have a 90 or 100 foot boat going along with us, and he had a seaplane. So then we'd fly up to these, you know, lakes in, in British Columbia and go trout fishing, or in southern Alaska, you know, somebody flies out to, to some river where, you know, it, it was, you just, you were catching, you weren't fishing, you just went out and caught fish. Like there was no, you know, it was different back then. 
like you caught fish and they were large fish. I look at the pictures of the salmon that that my dad was always holding or that we were holding when I was a kid, and it's just rare. That you, they're just a, a smaller size now. They're still salmon, but they're not 60 and 75 pounds. You right. know, they're 25 and 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a good point. What uh, he did show up, yeah. you know, when he showed up in Ketchikan and, you know, Gulf Oil or Exxon or any of those guys were there, and they were they were prospecting oil and they had equipment, they'd be like, hey, like we're drilling out of this place where there's like, you know, just, you just grab salmon with your hands, you know. Just, <laughs> they'd fly them out there and they'd fish for a few hours and come back with, you know, a lot of fish. What, and so speaking of that, you're, you know, growing up on, on the wild goose, is there, what are some of your most vivid memories? Is there one that really sticks out about, you know, spending time with your dad aboard? I think it's, um, you know, just the, the fear that if I did something that, you know, affected my little sister in any adverse way, that there would be hell to pay. You know, and that being said, he'd say, like, you know, run her into the place, and you, the place is up a river with breaking waves at the entrance, and I'm 10 and in a 16-foot Boston whaler with, you know, 115-horsepower motor on the back. And, you know, you got to judge the waves and, you know, ride the back of a wave in, and then you got to get out. And big set come in. One day, you know, a big set came in, and it was shit. It was pretty scary, you know, getting out of there. And I just remember thinking, like, he didn't care about didn't care about anything. Just did not want to have to get back there and, you know, tell my dad, oh, we got turned over in the surf. Other people got turned over in the surf, but I didn't want to get turned over in the surf. <laughs> just your sheer, sheer will and fear of your dad. <laughs> and, and you know what's funny? He never, he never really got physical. Hmm. You know, his, his look or his tone <laughs> did it all. I, and I think back and I'm like, he must have kicked my ass, but he really didn't kick my ass. He just, he just was very, very good at getting his point across. Ethan, I read somewhere that uh, he would discipline you guys with, you know, some of his classic movie lines. Is that true? I, it's, you know, for me, it's it's a blur. I didn't come up, I didn't grow up watching all his films. Like, I didn't come to John Wayne through film. Mm-hmm. Right. It was my dad, so like, he was my dad. So I loved him, but I loved him, I think, a different way than people who love him from film do. But he still had you know, a great and quick wit. He had a terrific sense of humor. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he let me drive when I was young. He let me operate the, the small boats when I was young. He let me shoot guns when I was young. That... He, you know, he did. Like, we did lock the guns up in a safe. They were loaded and they were out. Uh, but the same thing, again, with my little sister driving a truck around this ranch in Oregon, and the truck got stuck. He's playing cards and chess, and I have to walk back and go, hey, you know, Dad, the truck is stuck. You know, where is it? It's over there. How's your little sister? She's fine. She's right here. You know, we walked back. He goes, oh, how old do you have to be to drive? And I go, uh, 16. And he goes, well, how old are you? I said, I'm 14. He goes, uh-huh. Oh, my. <laughs> that was it. Never looked up, never looked at me. <laughs> Helped me get the thing later, but you just had to sit there going like, "Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible." I'm so glad you brought up the guns, the gun story. You, there's that iconic shot. That's you, you holding holding a gun in in the tender. What's the? Uh, g- give me a taste of the background there. Once again, it was the, the early '60s. <laughs> that was like a Mattel, you know. M16 that, you know, you put batteries in it and made the noise of an M16. I mean, it was okay. like every every kid had one of those. Uh, was just Somebody a... took a picture of it, and I guess they said it was a real one. It was just a little plastic toy gun. Well, it, it's, it looks iconic, and just, again, it shows a different, uh, kind of a different time. It looks like a fun time. Well, it's a time where, you know, it, it, let, let's be realistic, it, you know, a gun is a tool, a fork is a tool, a knife is a tool, a bomb is a tool, a car is a tool. If you use it properly, 
you know, you mm-hmm. use it properly. If you misuse it or you use it for the wrong thing, you know, somebody will get hurt. So that was, I think, probably right around the time of the Green Beret. Mm-hmm. On location with my dad, I had a Green Beret. You know, I had these camo fatigues that I, I would only wear, wouldn't wear anything else. At my boots, <laughs> my, my, you know, thing, I had that little M16, all the... The Green Berets were around, you know, the movie guys were around, we were all in. So, you know, you kind of have to take things in top context. That was a Mattel toy that ran on fucking Rayovac batteries. Like, it wasn't, you know, something special to John Wayne. That's what kids were playing with. Yeah. No, that's that's. I was playing with it because my dad was making a movie called The Green Beret, and for three months we were living with the Green Berets in Fort Benning, you know? Did those guys ever come out on the Wild Goose? Boy, I, I'm sure they did. Uh, I cannot remember anything specific related to that. Okay. I was pretty young. I mean, I was probably, what, five, six, seven years old. I was pretty, pretty little. Yeah. So, Ethan, I love the, uh, again, that what jumped out at me, that men's health interview a couple years ago, was the, the story getting thrown to a, another boat for, for crepes. Can you either retell me that one or another story of a, uh, a just another shocking memory that, that sticks with you? It's, it's funny when I think back because, you know, again, like, we didn't have helmets and we didn't wear seatbelts. We rode in the back of the station wagon in mass, you know, like 10 kids back there. You know, there was a dirt road to my school back in the day, and I'd ever go up the dirt road and kind of skid around the corners a little bit, you know, and toss us from side to side. It's just different. But I can remember being underway on the Wild Goose, and he would have me stand on the rail and hold his hand, you know, and he'd go lean back. And I'd be like, no, I don't, I don't really want to lean back. And go lean back, you know, so I'd lean back and hold his hand over the water. He said, you know, I'm not going to let you go. Don't worry about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there were things like that when I, you know, I really didn't want to do it, but we did it. And then funny things like, you know, I can remember him telling my little sister, Marisa, clean up your room. You know, and then he goes, he, pregnant, he comes back, still not made up. He goes, Marisa, I asked you to clean up your room. I'm not going to ask you again. Clean up your room. Okay, Dad. And she keeps playing. He's playing cards. He gets up again, he goes by her room, and all of a sudden you see her clothes flying over the side, just right out the door into the ocean. And she's like, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? He goes, I told you, three times to clean up your room. You didn't do it, so now you're going to live without this stuff. That is incredible. That is, I think that's the the John Wayne we all hoped. (laughs) We hoped he'd run a boat that way. Uh, So, you know, that now we're we're talking about that, but that happened like that was sort of the way you know he did things. He wasn't overtly mean, but there would be a point where you get your shit done, you know. I mean, he's the one who has to buy the clothes, so he's throwing his own clothes overboard, but it's, he's sending a message to the kid that she'll remember. Uh, um, yeah. I'm trying to think. What did you? There was a story about me that you'd asked about. Uh, the one in Men's Hall talks about you. Uh, you asked for crepes or something on on a uh, on another boat you guys were cruising with, and allegedly your dad had tossed you. you know, the boats were pretty close together, and he tossed you from from one boat to the other. So that was that was the guy he bought the wild goose from. His name was Max Wyman. He was a character. <laughs> he, was a, he was an older guy. He was single. Lived on Lake Washington. I think he was like a tugboat magnet or something. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of boats that would tow those, you know, back in the day, they would pull those log rafts, these massive, you know, rafts of log down from where they were logging uh, to the mills. And those days are, are all gone, but Max was like a character. He always had a great-looking girl. Remember the, the shower on his boat, the Tenora, which was about a 90-foot boat with a black ball. Uh, the, the shower had that sticker that said, save water, shower with a friend. <laughs> I read that. Like, it just, it was the first time, like, it clicked in my brain, like, you know, boy and girl. And it just, like, I just looked up to him like he was a god. I mean, 
I liked Max a lot. So anyway, the boats would always cruise together. We'd go from place to place. And uh, Max had a terrific gal that worked on his boat. I can't remember her name. She was French. And, uh, you know, I'd have pancakes over there one day. And they were, you know, they go, hey, what do you want for breakfast? Because my dad had a cook on his boat. Mm-hmm. He was terrific. Billy Sweat was a, like, just made the best meals and the best food for my father and his friends and my family for years. Terrific guy. Uh, but I remember those pancakes. They were different. And I said, oh, I wouldn't mind having some of, you know, Lorenz uh, pancakes. He goes, oh, you want those pancakes? He was near the radio. He goes, Mac, get over here close to my boat. And I don't really know what's going on. He grabs me by the scruff of my neck and, the, you know, around the belt. And he just throws me over, <laughs> uh, which was a few feet lower. But, right. you know, there was quite a bit of, I mean, there was water between the boats. You know? <laughs> I'm sure they were going very slow. Uh-huh. My memory as a child was, you know, holy sh! <laughs> <laughs> and everybody on that other boat scrambling to catch me as I come flying over. And, you know, I had pancakes over there, and at some point in the day, we stopped, and I got back on the other boat. I hope you swam back over or something. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> no, but, you know, like, if you ever tied up this, the dinghy ever came loose. You know, you had to go get it. And, um, like, I mean, I could tie a bow on before I could tie my shoes. <laughs> wow. Uh, but, you know, I can remember people, like, uh, like not tying up the dinghies and then having to swim and get them. And they were, you know, they weren't little dinghies, but they weren't, they weren't really big, but they weren't small. One was a 16-foot whaler, and then the other one was a 17-foot British dory, dory which was kind of a, Boston whalery type boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, I mean, I put a thousand hours on those things. Every chance I could get the, you know, the key, it would be that would disappear with those. Ethan, you you talked about kind of your sister learning a valuable lesson about cleaning her room, and your your dad throwing her stuff overboard. What what was the most important lesson he taught you out on the water? know that it was a lesson it was sort of learning by sort of taught you by example um and you know i i wanted to please him most of the time and i was fairly handy with the little boats you know like docking or parallel parking the whaler in between other boats or where there's not much room and uh you know sometimes he'd yell get let ethan do it you know so i'd be 10 years old and you know getting everybody to the ramp with the swells moving or whatever was going on because you know like i lived it like mm-hmm. the crew they were doing other shit they could drive the boats but they weren't super precise about it sometimes uh and i you know i'd loved when i'd be able to do something that pleased him like if i could drive that little boat and i could see a little gleam in his eye you know that that the kid did it he he sort of liked that stuff and I liked it because he liked it. Um, but one, speci- you know, one specific thing, I, I don't. It's hard to, to carve out specifics because it was just the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys should probably talk to my sister Marisa. I'm sure she'd she'd love to talk to you, and she'll have her own set of memories about things. That'd be great. No, we we we'd love to talk to her. Is there um. Is there a best Any way? Memories from a you know a fifty six year old guy who's trying to remember when he was seven, right. eight, nine years old. Is there a, is there a best way to to reach out to her or through you or through? Um, I'll, I'll I'll put you in touch with her. That'd be awesome. I'll text her right now and see if she's um she can talk. Great, thank you. And, and I was just curious, I mean, it, it seems like boating had such an important impact on your life. What is, I'd love to hear a little bit about what your boating's like today, and, you know, have, have you continued that tradition? What kind of boating do you do? Um, sure, magazine, hold on, I'm trying to type this <laughs> no right. or on the boat or trying to get to one of those places. Mm-hmm. 
So, yes, we lived in Newport Beach, but, you know, when my dad went to work, it was usually in Durango, Mexico, or Ridgeway, Colorado, or, or somewhere. Running a licensing company, you know, I'm trying to find a picture of John Wayne with some type of product. Forget it. Like Steve McQueen, Elvis Presley, all these guys, they're near, yeah. they're near Cadillacs and Fords and Rolex watches and, you know, this kind of booze and that kind of booze. John Wayne, is he's near a horse and, you know, Monument Valley. <laughs> right. No, there's no product in those shots. Right. That's a good uh, point. So it's, it's kind of funny. Um, but, you know, he died when I was 17. Obviously, I didn't didn't go boating for a while, but I think in 87 I bought a small tiara mm-hmm. and started, you know, going back to the places that we went in Catalina Island, you know, to, to White's Cove, and uh, rarely picked up a mooring, usually acre. Um, you know, we'd go over there and we'd hike and we'd swim. Back in the day, you could get abalone with, you know, with a mask in your bare hands. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, it got a little harder, so you started scuba diving for him. But basically the same thing that he was doing, you know, I did once again once I was in my 20s, and that's, you know, that's passed down. And if I go over there today, you know, I bump into generations of people that were there when I was a kid that are sharing that with their kids and their grandkids now. Right. Do you, uh, so do you own a boat now, or are you mostly just traveling to those islands other ways? No, no, I own a boat. I have, a, um, I have the last boat that Ed Monk Sr. designed. He died during its construction. No kidding. Uh, it, it's a 56-foot steel trawler. Um, uh, it was built, the hull was built by a place called Marine Iron up in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ballard, Washington, and then a company called Nordland, which still builds boats today. Yeah, no Nordland. House. So it's a steel hull with a with like a plywood house. Hmm. And it's uh, it belonged to a neighbor of my father's, a guy named Jay Hilgren, who was always down in Mexico or up in the Pacific Northwest, like my father was. Uh, this is just a you know it's just a smaller boat. But um, right. classic looking. You know, the Wild Goose was beautiful. There's a hotel in Newport Beach, a brand new hotel that was just built called the Lido House Hotel. And the developer, Robert Olson, wanted the hotel to reflect the history of the area. And one thing that he wanted to do was build this large scale model of the Wild Goose the way it used to look when my father owned it. Mm-hmm. The, the boat is still in the harbor, it's owned by Hornblower. But you, you wouldn't recognize it because they've added two more, uh, like, stories on the boat. It's mm-hmm. deck higher than it used to be, so it really doesn't have the same profile at all. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously not maintained like it was when it was in private hands. Right. So he built this model for the centerpiece of his hotel, and he has the, um, you know, the drawings from the Navy of the original minesweeper hole on the wall and some photos of of my dad around it and it was just a really nice tribute and really nice to see the boat uh, in the shape that it was in when my father owned it mm-hmm. because it was very comfortable it was very nice but it wasn't fancy right I think if you, if you look at John Wayne he he had a, a, a clear style that wasn't overly embellished you look at his his outfit on screen. You know, he, he looked good. He had beautiful shirts and scarves and a nice leather vest and mm-hmm. you know, cotton pants and you know really nice boots. It, it, it was specific. You know that was that was what he wanted to look like, and the boat was similar. Mm-hmm. It was um, very seaworthy, and very well kept, but it didn't have teak and holly decks. You know, it had. I don't. I don't know what the decks were made out of, but they were basically painted decks. You know, the the surface that you walked on was a you know painted painted wood. It, it, um, it seems the, like a the great top fit. deck was some kind of other material, some kind of non-skid material. You know, it wasn't uh, wasn't teak. It sounds like it was a, a boat that was made to function well and and not be particularly showy, even though for its size, it was pretty impressive at the time. Right. At the time, there just there weren't a lot of boats that were 136 feet long cruising around. No, you're absolutely right. 
So, so today, do you do you go boating with your family? What is uh, what's what's a typical uh, boat trip? I, I don't have kids, but you know, I'll take my nieces, nephews out on the boat. Um, if I go to Catalina Island, you know, it's typically snorkeling, hiking, you know, seeing friends, mm-hmm. and out on the beach over there. It's, um, I'll have different coves that I go to. My dad always went to White, where there's a sandy beach, mm-hmm. and the yacht club that he belonged to. Uh, and I belong to it as well. The Newport Harbor Yacht Club has a cove right next door to White's Cove called Moonstone Cove, and they have a, a dock and, uh, you know, like barbecues and a restroom and things, but they have a dock so you can get on shore easily, which is nice. Mm. My boat doesn't, doesn't have a rubber dinghy. It has a, a whaler as well, and, it, you know, it's tough to get. You can't really beach the, the whaler. It's too heavy if there's a surge. So, it's you know, it's nice to have that place over at Moonstone to get on shore and, not have to go up the sand right do do you feel like in a way you taking niece and nephews and and continuing to boat these places you you went to growing up is is that a way to kind of stay connected to your father it is you know you you get back there in the cove and the sun starts setting and the the wind settles down and everything glasses off and you're floating and there's a little motion and you know there's birds and it it just uh, takes me back to you know, very happy times in my childhood. Um, it, it was just, uh, it was a place where my dad was relaxed. You know, when I was about 12, my parents split, and uh, my dad had some health issues. And so there were, you know, there were those kind of issues that he had to deal with personally that were stressful. And I think whenever he got on the boat, you know, a lot of that could be let go, and he could just, you know, enjoy himself. He'd have somebody with him on the boat that he enjoyed. They'd play cards, they'd swim, have a drink at night, you know, get some exercise in the morning. I mean, it's just, it's a great life. And he had the option to be as involved in the operation of the boat as he wanted to or to just sit back and relax. I can remember times where one of those log rafts broke up, and so there's a bunch of, you know, big, pieces of timber in the water up in the Pacific Northwest and the captain say, hey Duke, I'm not comfortable going out there. I think we just, you know, go another direction or let some time pass. My dad say, Well, don't worry, I understand your issues. I'm gonna I'm gonna take us through. And he'd be up there, you know, well Duke's had a giant metal uh, you know, wheel mm-hmm. with um, you know, a brass outer ring and um, you know, he'd sit up there and drive the boat and, you know, spin the wheel right and left and find his way through the, you know, the big timbers and, uh, you know, get to his destination. But, you know, he'd take responsibility. And and in that boat, you had, you didn't have direct control of the motors. You'd signal the engine room and then they'd they'd switch gears or add power or take off power and signal back. Wow. It was a little bit, you know, it's a little different. It's a little bit different when you're trying to maneuver you know, you're just moving these levers that ring a bell, and the guy's down in the engine room waiting to see what the lever does. Oh, my like, gosh. You know, quarter of stern in the, you know, the port motor, and then he's got to move the lever and get that thing going. Uh, so it was um, it was different. The, it sounds like the original IPS. That's uh, <laughs> wild. Yeah, there was no direct connection. <laughs> so when you were coming into a dock or you're trying to do stuff, you had to really anticipate uh, because you didn't have, you didn't have, you know, quick reacting controls Ethan just just to switch gears only a little bit I just want to make sure so you were named after your dad's character in the searchers correct and I think you said this earlier did did he give you a nickname like did he call you the kid all the time like was that because I know he went by the duke obviously uh sometimes he would call me big stuff but I think he called my brothers big stuff too when they were kids and you know I don't know why when I was a little boy, it was John Ethan, and then at a certain point, it just became Ethan, and I don't know why. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. He'd call you shit heel or, you know, other things too, but not as regularly. <laughs> it's, the comparisons between your dad and my dad are, like, alarming. It's uh, I, I think they'd have a lot in common and nothing in Hollywood, but... <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny, and... You know, he wasn't somebody who went to Hollywood and became a star. He, you know, 
he was involved in high school, right? He didn't, the home life was a little, there was a little tension at home. And so I think he focused on his, I mean, he was head of the debate team, captain of the football club, ran the school newspaper, uh, was in the drama club. You know, he was very involved in, in high school. And then when he went to college, he went on a football scholarship. And when he lost that scholarship, you know, body surfing down here, he, he hurt his shoulder pretty badly and uh, lost that scholarship. He got a job on the back lot at Fox Studios in 1929 as a prop man's assistant, which means sweep, move, pick up, set down. You know, they blow leaves on a set. They got to reset it. You got to get all those leaves gathered up and, and put away. You know, that's where he started. And then he worked with the lighting guys. He worked on the sound side. He worked camera. He worked background. He was an extra. He did a stunt, you know, did stunt work for people. He, he, you know, had bit parts. I mean, he knew every, he was a production assistant. He did everything in the movie business. He knew it from top to bottom. Mm, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and so it was uh, like that Hollywood stuff. It just, he wasn't Hollywood. He was more like a guy who grew up on a ranch and knew how to do everything. And if you didn't know how to do it, he'd tell you. And if you didn't listen to him, then he'd throw something at you when he didn't do it right. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I'll show you how to do a knot. Like, anytime you're interested, but if you fucking ignore me and you tie the wrong thing and somebody's <laughs> got to go get the dinghy, it's going to be you, whether you want to or not, whether it's cold or warm or whatever. Right. You know, it was just... It was a little different back then. It was, uh, you know, it was different. You know, your and your dad was very, very similar. Yeah. <laughs> me, they were just different. It was more practical. Yeah. No, it's so funny. And then, I mean, I, I, had, I had no idea that he had all that uh, that background training. I mean, I guess that kind of plays into his kind of rugged anti-hero in some movies but you know even just just his aura that he portrayed in the movies and in in that vein i was wondering you know we we know john wayne we know your dad is such a western classic hero is is what's your favorite non-western movie maybe that he's in for me again it's it's a little different i'm i'm looking less at the movie and more at my dad at, um, at times in his life when I didn't know him. He was 56 when I was born. So he's 66 by the time I'm 10 and I can really run around with him. You know what I mean? Mm. I didn't know him when he was 26, 36, 46. So when I see films, when he's those ages, I can sometimes see a physical similarity or a movement that, that I see, oh my gosh, I, I, I move the same way. I don't know what the name of the film was, but it was an old one, and he was running along a river, and he dove in, and he swam underneath a canoe that people were in, and he was underwater for a long time, and he grabbed the front of the canoe, and he was able to, like, get himself up over the front of this tippy canoe and into it, and it reminded me of being, it reminded me of me, you know, and being around boats and, and being around the water and just being kind of handy, and, you know, I went like, oh, my gosh. I could really see the connection there. So for me, moments like that are, you know, they're golden because I have a connection to them. Mm-hmm. Great point. So, you know, I mean, Sands of Iwo Jima is a, is a terrific non-Western film, very inspirational. Uh, I enjoy it, except that he gets killed in it. Mm. Um I was on a movie called McHugh, which didn't, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people remember it, but again, I was with my dad. It was a non-Western. It was up in Seattle. We filmed out on the Pacific, uh, uh, the uh, Pacific coast of Washington in a place called Ocean Shores. I went at a big beach, and, you know, he drove like a Trans Am in it, and I, I just had a ball being there with him. It's not that I like that movie so much. Right. Any of the films where he's boating that kind of reminds you of Life Aboard Wild Goose or spending time with him? Yeah, when, when you see, uh, watch him move. You know, watch him ride a horse. This is what, 
you know, as an adult, I asked my brother, I'm like, how did dad have the horses? Like, did he keep them at his house in Encino, you know, the place that he moved from when I was born? And he goes, no, he didn't have horses. But nobody rides a horse like John Wayne. I mean, even the, you know, stuntmen and rodeo guys, you know, Ben Johnson, world, world champion rodeo cowboy. Watch the two guys ride. Watch my father ride in the searchers. Hmm. I mean, he he was really good at what he did. And so transfer that to boating. He was really good at boating. You know what I mean? He he came from the days when engines weren't reliable. He sailed on a you know a, a schooner with John Ford in the thirties. You know, they, they, there's pictures of him in the Sea of Cortez, you know, in the 30s. And they're filthy, dirty, and smoking cigars, and there's a sailfish there, and, you know, it's him and Ward Bond and Henry Fonda and John Ford, and they're on this 130-foot schooner called the Ariner. Hmm. Oh, my God, that's such a... That's I mean, an amazing picture. You know... I went to Cabo San Lucas before it was a, a town where it was just a, a, a little fishing village. Like, there was no, there was one hotel there. Bud Parr had a hotel there uh, that you could stay at. And there was a little dirt strip in town that guys could fly, you know, planes in if they had them. But, uh, you know, it's out of range of most, um, most boats at that time uh, from Southern California and San Diego. So, you know, it was just, it was more, it was, it was every bit of, it was more fantastic then because you had all that, that nature and all the natural beauty and, and the, you know, the terrific people that lived down in Cabo or in La Paz or in Mulahe, you know, or in East Lumujeres or Correas or, you know, Mazatlan or Manzanillo. I mean, they weren't really developed yet, so you still had true Mexican flavor there, like not resorts, you know, that are run to cater to people, but, you know, places where the locals ate, where they, you know, they'd barbecue your fish or they'd make you, you know, eggs and tortillas in the morning and a little stand that was kind of open but with a top, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it was It was those days. It, it's... You go down there now, and you kind of have to go out of town to find that. Good point. You know, there wasn't the giggling marlin. There wasn't, uh, you know, whatever the other stuff is that's down there now. I, I don't know. Senor frogs and yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that. That wasn't there. Right. There was none of that. I, I tell you what, authenticity is a, is a theme that really is coming through in in all your stories about life on the on the water. You know, now I see people going like, no way, five bucks, I'm not giving you five bucks, I'll give you a 250, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like that, there was a, there was respect, like if, if they wanted lobster from a guy that was selling lobster, you know, they, they might trade him things that they couldn't get down there, they'd pay him, you know, it was, uh, they yeah. liked, they liked us coming down, we liked going down there and interacting with them, we spent a lot of time with the people who were, who were down there, you know, my father married three, three Latin women, and uh, spent, I would say, probably half his life in Mexico. And and when he was older, and he wasn't happy, he'd say, you know, well, the hell with all this. I'm just going to get on the boat and go to Mexico. I'm just going to live there. You guys do what you want. That sounds like a good Except way to live. Then his, his ultimate dream would be to keep, you know, vagabonding around uh, super rural environments with nice people in, uh, you know, he loved Mexico. It sounds sounds pretty nice. Would you? How much time would you say you spent in your childhood on the boat? If you could break it down, you know, with him, I would have to say at least thirty percent of my life was on the boat. That's a solid thirty, if not more. Wow, not not an insignificant amount of time. No, no, because you know, when we went on the boat. We went for a while. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to go do a weekend. We had weekends on it, but it was typically, you know, a few weeks. So so it's funny. 
I think your dad is probably onto something about trying to get you on the boat before those teenage years kick in. Was there ever a time when you got a little bit older that, you know, maybe you you didn't want to hang out with dad on the boat or, or did he always, was it always such an adventure that, that you looked forward to it? I, I can't really remember not wanting to go on the boat. Even as a teenager, you know, if you let me bring a friend when I was a teenager, Boeing used to charter the boat every year. Mm-hmm. So they had, uh, uh, we had big walk-in freezers down under the galley. There was a, a big room, like storage room, and then walk-in freezers and some cruise quarters down there. And Boeing had racks of these big jackets, you know, huge pockets. And so, you know, me and my friends as teenagers would go down and fill up those pockets with beer, you know, beer cans or whatever, and then go, hey, we're going to go for a boat ride. And, you know, I think we were pulling something off. Right, right. They'd laugh. They knew what was going on. Um, so, I, you know, even as a teenager, I loved my dad. You know, I just, I always liked my dad. Mm-hmm. I didn't really not want to go with him. You know, mm-hmm. I, I sort of lived with him more, I think, when they split up. And, you know, he sort of did things that, that I liked. I mean, they were the things that I grew up doing them because of him. Right. And I, you know, I enjoyed it. So I liked the, the guys who, who worked on the boat. I liked the guys he worked with on location. You know, they were, they were kind of part of, part of my life. You know, whether it was a Wrangler, or stunt guy, or mm-hmm. a director that he'd worked with, or other actors, or you know the Wranglers. Um, it was it was great. It was a great childhood. You know, it wasn't like being taken to the horse place to take a horse lesson where you get there and the thing's bad when you get on it, whatever. I mean, it was like go get the horse, bring him in, brush him off, clean his hooves. You know, if you did all the stuff, then you'd get to ride it. Mm-hmm. You had to know how to do everything first. So it was wake up, wipe down the rails, mop the decks, get something to eat, do the same thing to the dinghy, you know, go out there. We used to do trash runs because back in the day you'd take the trash out, you know, a couple miles, mm-hmm. drop the bags in the water, run over it a few times, and then come back in. Like, that's how you disposed trash back then. Oh, my God. Today. How they did it. <laughs> Talk about a different time. <laughs> really. So, you know, I'd go do the trash run, and then I'd, you know, put water in the dinghy, wipe it off, get all the dirt off, mm-hmm. plug, you know, go fast, let all the water run out, put the plug back in, wipe mm-hmm. the thing off, come back, have breakfast. It was just like, you know, it was like that. I, you know, I, it was kind of like, I don't know. When you do it yourself, it's it's just there was crew, and I'm sure the crew would have done all that. Mm-hmm. But when we got there, we had to do some of it too. I, you know, I I'm sort of thank him for that because you know I've got my routine now. When I go on my boat, I make the crossing, I drop anchor, drop the dinghy in, get the hose out, rinse off the boat, squeegee the paint, squeegee the windows. You know, make sure all the dirt's gone from the mainland. I'm barefoot now. There's no marks on anything. Mm-hmm. It's just you know, you just you just get in a routine. Same thing in the morning. Get up, wipe everything off. You know, make a nice environment. Make a mess, clean it up. That's kind of how life goes, right? Make a mess, clean it up. That's it. Sounds like a great way to grow up. That really impacted you, uh, Ethan. You've been really generous with your time. Is is there anything else that you want the Power Modi reader to know about? about what it was like growing up and, and boating with your father. I, I just, you know, it's hard to convey, or maybe I don't have the vocabulary to convey, what being on the boat meant to my dad. Now, I don't know if you realize, like, how much pressure is on a person like that. Like, just constant pressure from just somebody seeing you, trying to get something to eat in a restaurant, trying to do something with your kid or your wife or your family without being, you know, just interrupted constantly. It it would drive most people out of their minds to not have, like, a minute of peace throughout the day. 
and he was so gracious. And, and the boat meant, like, freedom from that most of the time to him. A place where he could be with his family and he could be with his friends. Uh, it was very much a part of our life uh, growing up with him. And it was a place where he was at peace. So um, I, just, I, I don't know if I can convey the weight, like how important that boat was. And I can remember people coming to him. You know, here's a guy who's been married three times. He's got seven kids. You know, the, the business managers haven't been doing a good job. He's, you know, he's back to zero. He's got to go out and solve these problems. And as a you know, guy in his mid-60s with one lung and a pig valve in his heart, and, you know, everything's been broken and removed. And, and uh, you know, he was, I, I think maybe he, I don't know that he would have retired, but he kept going like, can I retire? And they'd be like, no, this happened, this happened, you got to keep going. Uh, and he's like, when the account would show up, he'd go, Bob, I don't care what you say. I'm not on the boat. That was his thing. Like, I don't care what the fuck is going on. I'm not on the boat. Don't tell me I have to do that. And so that was the workaround whenever he was in a in a tight spot. Wow. You know, it's just odd to think of a, of a guy like that being in a tight spot. But he was a very generous person. As I go through our archives today, you know, if somebody needed money to buy their kid a baseball uniform, it went out. If somebody needed money for this a check went out. It, it's amazing to me. I had no idea as a young person or even as an adult until I took over this company and we got into these archives that have been in, you know, stored away since uh, 79 and they go back to the 40s. So, you know, what he gave away, what he did to help people is, it's unfathomable. I mean, he was extremely generous uh, and also extremely grateful to the public that as a a man in his mid-60s, he could go solve his problems by working, his financial problems. He could still go work mm -hmm. as a leading man in a film, you know, at a time where he thought his career would, would never last that long. I mean, what he said, when I did Stagecoach, I was at the age where most actors were, weren't able to get work anymore. You know, once you hit your 30s, like, your career was kind of ending. Like, mm -hmm. they went to the younger guy, the younger guy, the younger guy. But it's really where his career took off right and uh he was able to maintain that and he was forever grateful to people so even though the boat gave him a respite from geez mr wayne i hate to bother you but could i get a picture with you or would you sign this for my kid or you know you're my you're my husband's favorite person or my son looks up to you he always gave him his time but when he did have time to spend you know the boat gave him that time sort of free and clear with his friends and his family and, and he clung to it. And I think he liked being on the water. You know, we'd find we have, he had, you know, I've got a bunch of his clothes and he had these weird shoes from the 70s, like wallaby type shoes. And somebody goes, oh look, you're, was your dad really 6'4"? Because he has like elevator shoes. I'm like, those aren't elevator shoes. He would buy like a pair of dress shoes of the day mm -hmm. and he would put the Sperry topsider sole, have it you know, stuck to the bottom so he had boat shoes. They could wear his shoes, but they had boat shoes sold. Oh, my God. Wow. We still have those. <laughs> That's a picture wild. Of them because it's funny. You know, people go, wow, he wasn't that tall, huh? I'm like, no, he was huge. <laughs> 70. Those are elevator shoes. Those are boat soles that he would put on. Oh, man. Because, you know, back then they had those kind of tan yellow top siders, like mm -hmm. lace-ups. You know, they were like, all smooth they just had laces they weren't the moccasins like they had the moccasins yeah and they kind of had the dress one which was kind of a yeah yellowish tan color i can't remember what they called like the original one and so he he'd have the soles removed from that and then stuck on the bottom of whatever <laughs> whatever other shoes he had that was his like Th that's wild experiment. yeah <laughs> man had style <laughs> Well, you know, I hope the article's good, and I'd, I'd love to share more from you. If you can think of anything else, feel free to call me on this phone. It's, it's my mobile. And then I'm going to get my little sister to, to track you guys down a little bit later today. That would, that would be a huge help. You know, you, you were very gracious for your time. And then every sunset, you know, we'd, we'd take the flag down, we'd fold it, and we'd fire off a cannon every day. Hmm. 
And so we have, you know, a video of him telling the crew how to fold the flag. We had that little, like, two, three-foot-long cannon that we'd stuff with gunpowder and wet newspaper. As soon as the sunset went, he'd fire off the cannon, and then it was, you know, time to have a drink. You said you have a video of that? I'm pretty sure there's a video of that, yeah. And let me let me dig around that at my office today. We'll make sure you guys have it. Um, That'd be incredible. And, you know, another thing that he would do in the Pacific Northwest, and this is in the 60s, is they'd go... You know, we'd go to a glacier, and, you know, the icebergs had capped off the glacier. We'd have to go on there with the fire axes from the wild goose, and we'd hack off, you know, chunks and chunks of, of glacial ice that they'd then put in the big stainless freezers that were in the, the aft deck of the boat. They were probably, like, 12 feet of freezer on each side of the boat, these old stainless steel ones. Yeah. And uh, we'd store that ice for their cocktails because it, you know, didn't melt very fast and it didn't water down the whatever spirit they were drinking. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's that's wild. Such a different time. It's it's amazing. Jeez. Yeah, Either, it was pretty fun. Either I just had one yeah, last but, one last question for you. Um, yeah. You know, he he passed when you were seventeen, and I was just wondering if, if was he still boating like right up until the end and. And I was just wondering, like, how did how did his passing kind of impact you? I mean, did it? I know you got back into boating, but did it sever that kind of the thrill or the joy of boating for a time? It was it was a very strange time for me. I was seventeen years old, uh, wasn't a great student. Um, well, you know, like any kid, when your parents put time in with you, you know, your grades are great. And I went to private school through eighth grade. So whether I was getting tutored or I was at that private school, I was learning. In high school, you know, he was older. He did, he wasn't doing well physically. And my parents were split up. There were, it, you know, financial issues. So my schoolwork faded. He went into, I drove him to the hospital one night, you know, up to L.A., UCLA. I was 17. He went in the hospital and he never came out. I lived with him in the house down here in Newport. And when he died... You know, the executors locked up that house. And, you know, as an adult, I understand the move. But mm-hmm. when I was 17, I couldn't go home. It was very strange. And, you know, all my stuff was in that house. Mm. And then, you know, everybody else was around. We were allowed to go with stickers, uh, you know, to take a few items out. But really, you know, that was it. Like, the boat was sold right before he died. Oh, my God. You know, they, they did sell that before he passed couple months so obviously he knew I don't think he would have let that go right uh, and yeah it was a, a, a very strange time for me I didn't really understand what was happening and I didn't have uh, sort of a mentor guiding me through that you know my mother was around uh, and I, I did go stay with her for a little while but I really sort of departed after that there was a stunt guy that hired me um, uh, to work on the Blues Brothers. So when I was 17, I went back to Chicago and, and uh, you know, sort of started started learning the, the film business. Uh, and and when I came back, I, I continued in it. So it, it was just a, a very, you know, I look back now, it's terrible. But at the time, it was just an odd, you know, you go from having a home and a, and a great feeling about being home with your, your person and then your person's gone. There's a bunch of lawyers and, and things running around, and it, you know my older brother was involved in that. It's just a strange time. And you kind of circled back to boating later on, I would imagine. I mean, going to Chicago and kind of learning. Yeah, years highway. later, I uh, you know luckily those guys hired me and, and gave me some direction, and I ended up on a soap opera a few years later. And at that point, I was able to get a boat. And it was, you know, it was kind of like the first move I made, and I was straight back to Catalina, hmm. and Clemente, Santa Barbara Islands, you know, just constantly up and down the, the coast here, uh, stuff. But a lot of time on that little boat, and eventually got a larger Bertram, and then got this boat that I have now called Nordic, which is the the trawler, and I. Uh, I have a dock, so I can't get a boat that's one inch long because this is all I can fit here. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Ethan, thank you so much. I just want to make sure that we have uh, your proper uh, title. You're the president of John Wayne Enterprises? 
Okay. And uh, what Amy sent us was the sole and exclusive steward of the John Wayne brand. Um, you also serve as the director of the John Wayne Cancer Foundation. And is there anything else that we don't have or we left out? No, uh, that, that's fine. Okay. I run a family business and I also oversee the, the Cancer Foundation. So. Okay, gotcha. Well, you guys do uh, do great work, and you talk about your, your father being generous with your time. Uh, obviously, we see where that apple landed. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, and you guys, if, you know, if you would mention, it, it'd be great if you let people know that, you know, a lot of work has been done under the Joe Wayne umbrella in cancer, and, you know, I'm happy to get you that information. But you guys are back east, right? That's right. So along the coast here, we have a junior guards program. So like every kid fights to, to qualify to get in junior guards. They go down in the summertime, and they learn from the lifeguards, you know, everything related to beach and ocean. It's an incredible program. Thousands of kids go in it. We started a, a program with the Cancer Foundation there called Block the Blaze, where we teach kids, you know, sun safety and how to spot a bad mole and when to get something checked block the blaze and they get a, a hat from us and they get a some John Wayne sunblock from us which is a, a really terrific product with no chemicals in it and um, we have young presenters uh, go present. So we started in Newport and now we are in every junior guards program from the Mexican border to the Canadian border and in 12 other states. So we've gotten to about 350,000 kids in the last few years. Hmm. Bottom about you know sun safety. John Wayne's responsible for a lot of technology related to melanoma and breast cancer. Mm-hmm. A lot of the research has has done really well for melanoma and breast, and we also train surgeons uh, to become specialists in melanoma, breast, GI, urology, and non-invasive neurosurgery. So there's 160 uh, surgeons out there that, that are uh, top of the charts that were trained at John Wayne. Uh, immunotherapy and some of these things that you're seeing today, genomics,